Number one is pick up the phone and have a consultation with an attorney. Most attorneys, including my firm and probably yours too, will, will have an initial consultation of a certain duration at no cost to the client to kind of walk them through and ask the right questions and see if a further consultation or services are warranted. Um, a lot of people have the, I can do it myself mentality. And that's good up to a point when you actually figure out you don't know what you don't know. So I tell everybody, you know, if you're preparing your taxes, that's not a time to do it yourself and tell your CPA later what you did. You should be consulting with a CPA in that early decision. This is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And if you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest uh, expert episode. We have another great guest, but also for a great expert episode, which is Scott Williams. And uh, Scott, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, different uh, things related to business, uh, generally about kind of starting a business, what things you should, should consider on entity formation, partnership agreements, employee, uh, employment issues, especially in California, employee versus employer, um, contractors, whether they should be employees or hourly or salary or how that would be set up, and maybe a bit also on the estate planning and succession planning. So a lot of fun and uh, interesting episodes, or ep- episodes, interesting topics. And so, and I, uh, you're, you're, I'm already getting tongue-tied before we even get going. But with that much as, a, uh, as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, Scott. Devin, thanks to be here. Absolutely. So I gave kind of a quick introduction about what we're going to be talking about. But before we dive into that, maybe just introduce your aud- or yourself to the audience a bit, take it a minute or two and let them know why you're an expert in this area. Sure. We are the small business law firm. It's the name of our firm. And we focus on everything from a startup with nothing more than a concept and zero employees uh, up to about a 25 employee company. Uh, the big thing is most Small businesses are looking for guidance, they're looking for help, someone to hold their hand, they don't know where to turn, they often go to a big law firm and they get one lawyer for contract, somebody else for employment law, and the lawyers start billing each other having these conversations and all of a sudden you know that they're in the wrong place. So we try to be nimble and focused on really the entrepreneur, the small business and helping them grow uh, much like you do in the IP side. No, definitely makes sense. And now just is, is the audience, how long has the firm been established? How long have you been kind of practicing in this area? Sure. Uh, we're in our 21st year in business, uh, growing every day. Uh, two lawyers hiring a third. And um, most, of our, most of our clientele is in California, although we do some transactional work across state lines. Awesome. Definitely makes <clears throat> definitely make. <clears throat> Makes sense. So now diving into a bit of the topic at hand, which is kind of a lot of to do with starting a business, how to form it, how to get it all set up and, and kind of how to plan for that. Diving in a bit, if you're to say, you know, had somebody walk in your office as an example, and they have the world's best idea. And this is, you know, I hear it from the IP side, but world's best idea. Some of them are world's best idea. Others are just okay ideas. But yet, let's say it was the world's best idea. And they said, okay, now how do I get started? You know, what should I consider from forming my business, from getting it set up and that type of thing? And they're saying, you know, do I need an LLC, an S Corp, a C Corp? Do I just do it on my own? Or what, what, are, or what would be kind of the general advice for somebody to walk in your door as far as how to go about starting to get a business set up? or what they should consider? Sure. The the number one thing I look for in a new business setup is liability. 
Operating a business as a sole proprietorship or two or more people as a general partnership are the default entity choices. And people don't often realize that when two or more people go into business together, unless there is a clear written agreement to the contrary, they have just formed a general partnership. And a general partnership by very definition means that all general partners, no matter how active they may choose to be, are vicariously liable for every liability of that partnership. And so I tell people, do you really want to be exposing your personal assets to your partner driving down to Office Depot and picking up a box of pens and takes out a school bus? And the other partner says, well, I wasn't driving the car. And the law says, we don't care. It was in furtherance of a partnership, a for-profit enterprise. So there are only three real choices for most small businesses today to form a business entity for liability protection. Uh, LLCs, corporations, which are divided into either C corporations or S corporations, and I'll address all three. An LLC, certainly the simplest form of liability protection. It can be formed with as little as one member or, or as many members as you want. Uh, advantages of the LLC, they're fairly simplistic to operate. You don't have to have separate meetings of directors or shareholders. The members themselves can run it with one layer of management. And typically they'll elect to tax the LLC if it's a single member, which means also a husband and wife in a community property state. Uh, it'll be a disregarded entity, which means you put it right in your Schedule C of your tax return and no separate federal return is required. Um, the drawback of that is uh, an LLC single member filing a Schedule C, it has the highest audit rate known to mankind. So for a very small business, not a big deal. When you start making money, you don't want to have your income on a Schedule C. Uh, a multi-member LLC is going to be taxed as a partnership. It'll file a 1065 federal partnership return. And that's also fine when the business isn't making a ton of money, but when it starts becoming very profitable, at this point, you start looking at the advantages of an S corporation. And an S corporation very simply is, it's still a pass-through entity, meaning the S corporation itself doesn't pay federal income tax. All of the income flows through to the individual shareholders on a K-1 is reported on their personal tax returns. But you can do a lot more with an S corporation in that you only have to take a reasonable minimum salary for your services, and then mm -hmm. everything else goes out on a K-1 as a distribution. On those distributions, you do have to pay state and federal income taxes, but you don't have to pay FICA and Medicare and unemployment insurance and disability insurance and all of these other junk taxes that can add up to like 13, 15%. So mm -hmm. for a lot of small businesses, the S corporation is the preferred choice of entity if they qualify to do so. And in many cases, uh, the only requirements are that all of the shareholders be US citizens or US residents. You have to have one class of stock and less than 100 shareholders, all of whom have to be natural people. They can't be other entities uh, or, or corporations. Um, C corporations, yeah, they still do exist and they are formed occasionally, uh, although rarely does an entity want to be a, a C corporation nowadays just because you have to pay everything out to the shareholders as a salary uh, so that the corporation makes no money and avoids double taxation. Hmm. No, and I, and I def, definitely think that makes sense. Now, one, one thing I'm going to circle back to is you talked about, you know, limiting your liability in the sense of, hey, you know, if you're, if you don't have anything set in place, your partner goes, they get in a car accident on company business, so to speak, and now you're on the hook that they can come after your house, your life savings and everything else because you're equally limited if you didn't, if all you were in is a, a partnership. 
Now, the question would be is between, you know, S Corp, C Corp, LLC, um, you know, and then there's an LLP and some other variations. But really, when you look at that, from a liability perspective, is there any real difference between S Corp, C Corp, LLC, or they, from liability or about the, all the same? And then you're really looking more for tax or, or tax purposes or, in a, or how you want to set it up for investing, meaning, hey, S Corp or C Corp, I would do it shares. And so maybe if I'm having venture capital or angel investors, angel investors or some come in, I want to have them buy or get shares in the company because they're easier to do that as opposed to having to split the equity at full time. But liability wise, is there any difference in liability? So statutorily, all three, uh, a corporation which is taxed either C or S uh, and an LLC are going to have the exact same liability protection. That's assuming you run both of those entities properly. Mm -hmm. LLCs, you can be a lot sloppier in your accounting and in your management because they don't have to have minutes of shareholders and directors, and they don't have to have the same accounting uh, paper trail because a single member LLC is a disregarded entity for tax purposes. With a corporation, you do have to have annual minutes, uh, annual meetings of the shareholders, annual minutes of the directors, and you have to record those in minutes. It takes five minutes, hold up a glass of wine to a mirror, have a meeting with the shareholders. It's not that difficult, but you're supposed to document this stuff in, in minutes. From an accounting perspective, anytime you're borrowing or lending money to an entity other than your own, uh, you should be documenting that with a promissory note, especially if that's going to be carrying over to the next taxable year. Not a big issue with a single member LLC, but it is with a corporation. Okay, and that and that definitely makes sense. So if I were to maybe summarize from a legal perspective, business, as long as you run them properly, as long as you have either the, you know, the board, or board of directors take some minutes or whatnot, or an LLC is even more laxer than that. As long as you're following within what the requirements are for each entity, you'd have the same from the liability perspective. Now on the getting into it a bit, because one of the questions they have is, you know, let's say I'm a startup and I want to, I'm going to seek uh, angel investors or venture capital. Is there a preferred way in other, in other, wise, in other words, are they looking for an LLC? Are they looking for an S corp so they can get shares in the business? Are they looking for a C corp or when you're going out and saying, you know, there's a difference if I'm bootstrapping and I'm doing it myself and I'm just trying to reduce or keep it simple and, and keep the cost low, maybe an LLC works. But if you're looking to say, hey, I'm going to be going raising a, a series A or series B or something in those rounds and I need to raise a substantial amount of cash, should they be setting or doing anything to set it up initially? Sure. So one of the challenges of an S corporation is that it has to have only one class of stock, which is common stock. So if you want to have multiple classes of stock for what you're recruiting investors to buy one class, but not all classes, S corporations typically don't work that well. They're generally when the ownership is established. Um, angel investors, if they're coming in to acquire equity, most of those investors don't want to be getting a K-1 for the profits and loss of the business until they actually see some profits. In, in many cases, they'll ask the entity to reclassify themselves for tax purposes as a C corporation. One of the advantages of an LLC is you have the flexibility throughout the life of the LLC to file an 8832 and elect to tax it as a C corporation. You also can tax it later on as an S corporation by filing an IRS 1150-2553. So there is flexibility with an LLC to make changes later for tax purposes while still maintaining the original simple structure. Hmm. 
Okay. And that, and that definitely makes sense. And so you're saying, Hey, if we need to do distributions, if we want to have different classes of stock, we'll look at whether it's an S corp or a C corp. And I I'd read in, I didn't know it necessarily here, but I'd read in there an LLC from a investor perspective is typically they're not looking for an LLC. It's more of a corporation. Is that a, a fair summary? They don't want to typically get K-1s for their own personal tax returns. So they'll may, they may want to see a C corp or have the LLC elect to be taxed as a C corp. Uh, during a period of which they're they're writing losses. Uh, a lot of angel investors simply don't qualify because they don't have any material participation to write off losses, um, but that's more of a tax issue. Every angel investor is different. Okay, and definitely makes sense. So now shifting gears just a little bit. So we talked a little bit about, you know, getting or initially figuring out S-Corp, C-Corp, LLC, those type of things. I'm going to get into one that I know a lot of attorneys dislike, which is, you know, but I get why they're, why on the startup side and the small business, why they do, which is a legal Zoom or those type of, you know, type of entities, because, you know, they're saying, hey, it's just a really simple LLC. I just need some standard stuff. I just want to have it in place. And so that I can have, you know, I can get a bank account set up. I can have a brand, you know, maybe get an Amazon brand registry or have, you know, very simple things or open an e-commerce site. I don't really need anything complicated. It's me and my spouse or it's me and my friend or whatever, and I said, I know attorneys are saying, well, you know, and in some self-interested, they're saying, hey, if I do that, if I always say, go, yes, go use LegalZoom, then I'm, I'm going to be out of business. And yet, if, and yet there's real drawbacks as to things that oftentimes don't get considered. So if you're talking to someone that is just a small business, just starting out bootstrapping, what are the pros and cons of LegalZoom? When, should, when maybe is it acceptable or okay? And when should you say this probably isn't a good idea? So- I often have clients walk in my office with a binder in their hand prepared by a document preparation service. And I'll leave the exact name of the company off there, but there's many variations of the name you quoted. Sure. Uh, by the time I sit down with the client and show them what's missing from this binder and what wasn't done properly, I usually get the takeoff of the commercial, oh gosh, I could have had a V8. Uh, because what they didn't get was the legal advice, is this the proper entity for their business? A classic example is, um, you know, professional service providers in most states can't form regular LLCs. They either have to form a professional LLC if it's even available in that state or in states like California, they have to form a professional corporation. They cannot operate their business as an LLC. So I get a, you know, a landscape architect that says form an LLC, LegalZoom doesn't ask the right questions. They just take their money and run. And by the time they get to me, they have to start all over again. So hmm. look, I don't, I don't want to knock uh, those businesses that are trying to save clients money. But by and large, the conversation you need to have with an attorney to walk you through what is the best choice of entity for you, the licenses you hold, the type of business you're conducting. I mean, it's worth its weight in gold. It's just simply a matter of apples and oranges. So let's say I get lucky. You know, so now I'll, I'll ask the, the probing question. That I was gonna, I'll change my halfway through. I'll change the question I was going to ask, which is, Let's say I don't have much money. Let's say, you know, I, I'm bootstrapping it. This is a side hustle. We're fairly limited on funds. Is there any time when you would say it's, oh, and I know it's a hard question. Anytime you say it's okay or it's better, you know, sometimes in other words, I'll say, well, it's better than do, to have an, an illegal Zoom LLC if you can't afford anything, right? In a sense, if, you're, if your choices are, I have $100, I can either do legal Zoom or I can not do anything and do it as a general partnership. 
Is that an acceptable, you know, is there any way that they should say, I just can't afford attorney services. I certainly get that attorneys are worth what they, what they charge, but I can't afford it. Should they consider doing those type of things or give a, a little bit of balance there? So my first reaction is if you can't afford a simple fee for incorporation of a corporation or organization of an LLC with a firm like ours, whose fees are really not much higher than a legal zoom. You really shouldn't be in business. I mean, if you're so strapped on cash that you just don't have the ability to write the smallest check, how are you going to make expenses in your business? It's just a very difficult pro proposition. So, yeah, I'd rather see somebody go to an online service than try and do it themselves and mess it up. But, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have to have a certain amount of cash behind you to operate your business. Unless you're simply a consultant with zero expenses and all you're selling is the brain cells in your mind well okay fine but if you have anything else at risk it's dangerous well and, and i'm like i said I, i'm playing a bit of devil's advocate so i'm just pushing back the because the reason i ask is you know starting as you're doing a startup let's say you have a few you know you have five thousand dollars set aside and i'm just going to make up the number but then you have okay we got to come up with a prototype we need to get an e-commerce platform because that's what we're going to sell online we're going to be able to we, we need to find someone that can actually build the website we need to hire it you know at least a part-time employee that can help out you know they've got all these things competing in their interests and so you know and and i would say and i'm absolutely the same way and i always look at everything well you need to have intellectual property because you'll kick yourself down the road if you don't have a patent and somebody rips it off or a trademark and they're always you know there's always more more things to spend money on than money to spend as a startup and so sure. how do they balance you know the kind of the follow-up question to what you said is you know if i'm just getting started and i only have a few thousand dollars that i've saved up for over a period of time and that's all i have and i you know basically once i spend through that if i don't start making income then the business goes out when should they start or when is the drop dead and i know it's hard it's a, it's a depends question but when is when should they say by this time i should do it should they start out as a partnership doing it for a few months seeing if it's worthwhile to invest or get you know spend other money there should they is it should it be the very first thing before they ever get going to do an llc or you know a business corporation or kind of how do you balance that so so the number one concern i have is you, you mentioned the word website mm -hmm. merely having a website that turns out is not ada compatible could expose you to tens of thousands of dollars in litigation fees just by having a website. There are plaintiffs, lawyers out there, professional plaintiffs that go on websites, check them out to see if they're compatible for the visually impaired, and they just start filing lawsuits. And, and the first reaction the, the business owner has is, what did I do wrong? Well, you know, you didn't do anything intentionally wrong, but if you have a website and it's not ADA compatible, you can be sued for it. I'd much rather have that website in an LLC or a corporation where and it has no assets, where the worst case scenario is I start over again with a new LLC than to give a plaintiff's lawyer ammunition to work with when they go to sue you. No, and, and I definitely make sense. And I said, I, I, I would, I always counsel now, now that I'm not playing devil's advocate on the flip side is that, you know, it's always easier to your point, LLCs you can get fairly inexpensive. It provides a high, much higher level of protection. It's always worthwhile. So I like to push and play devil's advocate just to, to tell people understand why that is that you, you know you should be considering things earlier on. Now shifting gears just a bit. One of the other questions is people start getting into a business formation is you know should I hire people as independent contractors as employees? Should it be hourly? Should it be salaried? Should it be you know um, you know a 
a bonus structure, you know, or, or something of that nature? Or, or So how do you start to figure that out for your business with your, as you form your business, how you should be setting up with employees or contractors or, you know, commission-based or bonus structure or salary or whatnot? Any considerations on any of those? Sure. So there are federal laws governing whether a person should be classified as an employee or a contractor. And then there are state-specific laws. The more restrictive of the two, the one that pushes you into employment is the one that applies. The federal standard is not a cakewalk, but it's not very difficult to meet. Basically, if you don't exercise independent control over how the work is done, if you simply pay people to accomplish a project and you don't micromanage their time schedule, you can pretty much make people a contractor under most federal IRS guidelines. The problem is more and more states today are looking at the federal guidelines as being way too weak and they're all passing their own laws that tighten up the requirements to be a contractor. So by default, if you can't meet the test of a contractor, that worker needs to be an employee. And I can think of no other state that has a pendulum that swung to the far direction than California. In California last year, we passed AB5 and AB5 basically says, you now need to meet a very stringent ABC test in order to be a contractor. You have to be free of degree of control. That's easy. It's the old test. The new one, the B prong is you have to provide services that are different than the employer provides. And then C, you have to be in an area that's customarily uh, staffed by contractors. So for example, if you are a small business and you're in the, uh, you're, you're selling dresses in a dress shop, any salesperson on the floor has to be an employee. They can't be a contractor. Outside salespeople have to be contractors, or have to be employees. If you, if you hired a web designer to build a website for a couple of days and then they went away, you could argue, hey, I'm not in the web design business. Therefore, that person could still be a contractor. You probably get away with that. But more and more states today are passing laws like that, and it's becoming more difficult to hire somebody and, and properly maintain them as a contractor. The problem you have is at some point that relationship sours and the employee marches off to the unemployment department and says, I'm filing an unemployment insurance claim. The first thing unemployment insurance says is, I'm sorry, we don't have any reportable wages for you. Therefore, you don't qualify for unemployment insurance. And that's when the worker says, oh, I was misclassified as a contractor. And the EDD or the state agency that manages unemployment insurance then says, oh, we've got a special window for you. Step over here. We'll get you taken care of out of our slush fund. And by the way, we'll start an investigation against the business. Hmm. That audit is very expensive. It can result in you paying uh, up to three years of back taxes and in many cases, workers' compensation insurance for the people that weren't properly covered. Hmm. So it's, it's always a challenge making people a contractor. It's very state specific before you classify anybody as a contractor that isn't already an established business corporation or LLC, check with local employment council or business council in your state. Now, let me ask, cause you hit on that at the very end. So would it be worthwhile if I were to looking to hire an independent contractor, whether it's one individual or multiple ones that I should simply require them to be you know, in an ideal world, require them to be an independent contractor for us. They have to first form their own LLC. And then I engage with that LLC as a vendor, an independent contractor and that type of arrangement. Does that aid in it or is that, or it doesn't really help much? So that does help if you're paying a corporation or LLC, meaning you're paying a legal entity. 
those mm -hmm. entities cannot go on payroll because only individuals can be on payroll. Mm -hmm. But that only works if they have yet to provide services for your business. Mm -hmm. If they're already employees on payroll and you tell all your workers, I can't afford these workers comp insurance premiums, everybody has to go get your own LLC. The Labor Commission in your local state will see that as a subterfuge and they'll say, sorry, these people are still employees. Hmm. So in other words, if you're going to now, here's the question. And I and I know it's always hard because especially when it's a situation specific. But let's say, you know, so one thing it sounds like if you're going to do that, you would have to do it before you engage your service saying, hey, before I engage your services, I only engage with third or LLCs or other independent or third or independent vendors that are have a business formation if you'd like to do it we'd love to hire you but go for your llc it's not very expensive go do it type of a thing now if you're in that process it's situation already meaning you didn't know that you already have an independent contract agreement is with an individual not an llc and you know you're saying okay gosh it'd be a lot easier to go back and try and retroactively do that theoretically and i know it's harder in theory could you fire them or let them go not do work for with them for a period of time and then re-engage the llc if they formed one or is that going to not obviate any of the issues i don't see any benefit there the, the real test is is the is the individual incorporating their business or forming an llc for their business because they want to or because they're being told they have to that's mm -hmm. the test that a labor commissioner is going to use how long ago they quit or whether there was a gap in work, that's not the big issue. Uh, you know, if I'm forming an LLC because I'm a consultant and I'm doing it because I'm marketing myself as a consultant to multiple businesses, that's generally good enough for most labor commissioners. But if the business is telling their, their, their workers, go out and get an LLC, otherwise I can't hire you or I can't keep you, that's never a good thing. Okay, no, definitely makes sense. So. Well, now shifting gears a bit, and we, I kind of brought it up, but touching on it, is there any considerations when you're doing hour, hourly versus salaried as far as, you know, how you should pay people, you know, what considerations you might think of, you know, everything from, hey, I'll just pay them, you know, no matter if they work X amount of hours, I'll pay them X amount of dollars versus I should put them on a salary. Thoughts on that issue? Sure. So employment law is highly state specific. You have federal law that has some pretty basic guidelines issued by the Department of Labor. And there is a federal minimum salary that an exempt worker has to have to be qualified as exempt. If they don't make at least that much money, they have to be an hourly employee, which means they're subject to at least the federal overtime guidelines of 40 hours a week. Many states have minimum salaries that are significantly higher than the federal government. California, even for a small business a day, the minimum salary is $54,000 a year. And every time the minimum wage goes up, that minimum salary goes up with it. So mm -hmm. in addition to meeting the minimum salary, they typically have to meet a test that allows them to be an exempt worker as opposed to a non-exempt worker. Uh, there's three basic categories to, uh, to sum summarize and simplify it. They have to be either be managerial, which means that they're spending at least half their time supervising two or more employees somebody who has a title of office manager, but also answers phones and files papers, isn't gonna qualify. Uh, second is a professional exemption, you know, doctors, but not nurses, lawyers, but not paralegals, uh, dentists, but not hygienists, architects, but not draftsperson, they can qualify. And the third category is one that's a bit more esoteric, it's called the administrative exemption. This is a worker who exercises a high degree of administrative independent decision-making, not somebody who performs routine tasks. 
For example, an executive secretary to a CEO of a big company could probably qualify for the administrative exemption, whereas a receptionist answering phones could not. Hmm. No, it definitely makes sense. So, so now we do that. So let's say, hypothetically, I, I get my business formed and I decide, okay, it's going to be an LLC, an S Corp, C Corp, whatever. And then I say, okay, independent contractors are too tricky. And especially in my state, I'll just go in employees and I'm going to just go salary because then I don't have to worry about minimum wage or all those other things. And I get all that set up and then I say, okay, all good to go. Finally got everything set up. And then I say, okay, now I'm, now I'm going to, and I don't know that it's ever or completely finished and you should probably be checking things in as the business grows and pivots and adjusts, but get all of that set up. And now I'm looking to say, okay, now I should probably think about, and probably should have thought about earlier, estate planning and succession planning or anything of that nature. How should you start tackling that from the, especially as a business owner, you know, co-owner or founder, or, you know, owner in the business, how should you start to grapple with that or set that up? Sure. So the number one thing that most business partners fail to do is establish a written partnership agreement at the beginning of the relationship. I say the word business partner. If you're bringing on a business partner, partner being a generic word could also apply to a shareholder of a corporation or a member of an LLC. uh, And that person isn't already your spouse. um, You need to have a, a, a marriage agreement and a divorce agreement all rolled into one, because what happens if there is a falling out and you two can't get along? What happens if one of you passes away? Do you want your partner's heirs to become your new business partner? And these are questions that have to get asked that no document preparation company could ever draft because this requires extensive questions and answers with uh, between the attorney and the client to find out what type of relationship and what type of provisions should be in that agreement. Are you are you getting life insurance for Uh, to buy out your partner's interest, or is the value of the business starting out so small it's not important? There's lots of questions that need to be asked, such as how much money is each partner going to take out of the business? And it doesn't matter that your living expenses are high. Uh, The general rule is that partners are going to have equal compensation and equal percentage of the profits unless they agree otherwise. And the last thing you want to do is start taking more money out than you should and creating a bad partnership. No, definitely makes sense. And I think that to give that some consideration, and I would say, you know, considering that early on, when you're setting up the partnership agreement, as an example, are you, you know, if you die, does your spouse going to be able to take over and have yours or, you know, that may be a good thing or bad thing. Maybe you want this spouse and, you know, but on the other hand, if your partner dies and your spouse takes over or they don't have, you know, or the partner and the spouse die and now it's their kids or their other family members, how does that work? Do you have the ability to buy out their shares or did you just get a new partner that you have no idea who they are? or what they can contribute and oftentimes if you don't think about that even in the partnership agreement and then even more so now when you pass on can you actually give it to your family can you sell it off can you do other things and if you don't start to plan those in earlier on in conception you'll get or months or years or put in a whole lot of time and effort and then find yourself boxed in as to what you're able to do well right i mean you never know what you're going to get for your next partner unless you're very careful about how you phrase it yeah exactly so so as we, you know, always more things that we could touch on, never enough time. But as we start to wrap things up, always have one question at the end of each expert episode, which is we talked about a lot of different things and probably people are feeling overwhelmed. They're saying, oh my gosh, that's a lot to do to figure out to do a business or anything of that nature. And they're saying, okay, well, if I'm going to start today and just do, just do one thing, if I, if I have to get started and I will only do one thing today, what would be the one thing to, that they should start to, to work on or tackle to get, uh, get started down this road? Number one is pick up the phone and have a consultation with an attorney. 
most attorneys, including my firm and probably yours too, will, will have an initial consultation of a certain duration at no cost to the client to kind of walk them through and ask the right questions and see if a further consultation or services are warranted. Um, a lot of people have the, I can do it myself mentality. And that's good up to a point when you actually figure out you don't know what you don't know. So I tell everybody, you know, if you're preparing your taxes, that's not a time to do it yourself and tell your CPA later what you did. You should be consulting with a CPA in that early decision. What's the best form of business entity for me? The same way you consult a lawyer. Um, we're all saving for our retirement. You know, are you going to pick your own stocks? Are you that smart? Maybe you are, um, but you may have picked pick Bitcoin at the right time or the wrong time. And who knows? No, and I, and, I, and I think that that's a good point in the sense that, you know, picking up the phone, getting that strategy, at least knowing, hey, if I get started, here's the things I should consider. Here's when I should consider them. Here's the cost I'm going to be looking at. And so you can part, start to build that into a strategy. And even I tell a lot of our clients, hey, it may not be that you're getting going today, but it's better to at least talk with an attorney, understand what your options are, what you should be doing, such that that's part of your strategy. So when you do get to that point, you already know that that's going to be something you need to get taken care of. Well, as we wrap up, if people want to reach out to, they want to be a client, they want to be a customer, they want to be an employee, they want to be, you know, your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you or find out more? So go to our website, uh, www.smallbusinesslaw, all one word, .org, O-R-G. Learn more about our firm. Again, we're primarily a California firm for small businesses. Uh, but we also do LLC and corporation formations in all 50 states. Awesome. Well, that uh, definitely sounds like a great way to check you out, find out more from information, get uh, things figured out and go from there. Well, thank you again for coming on uh, to the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell or your own expertise to share, we'd love to have you on. Just go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the podcast. Two more things as a listener. One, make sure to click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so new people can find out about us as well. Last but not least, if you ever need help with uh, your patents or trademarks or anything else, just go to strategymeeting.com and sign up, some, or sign up for some time to chat with us. Thank you again, Scott, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks, David.